Did you catch that in the song that you just heard? Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. That is, before I said or did anything, you loved me. It's called unconditional love, which is the deepest longing of every human heart. And that about sums it up, as we'll see, if you turn to the book of Romans, if you have your Bibles. Romans chapter 8. It sums up the heart of our passage for today, of our verses for today, verses 29 and 30. These are some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, and for that reason, oftentimes we read right over them. But today, we're going to dive in. Romans 8, and let's take a running start at it, beginning in the verse just before our two verses, verse 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And here it is. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're going to see today that Paul condenses a story that's really of epic proportions, of cosmic proportions, into just two verses here. It's like our whole existence from eternity past to eternity future uh, passes before our eyes in just a few words for an eternal perspective on things that, that Lord willing, will never forget. We're uh, in a chapter in Romans that's really kind of the grand finale of the greatest exposition of the gospel in writing, the greatest explanation of the good news that you'll find anywhere. It's the conclusion to Romans section 1, the first of three sections in Romans, and that's the uh, chapters 1 to 8. It's a chapter, uh, chapter 8, where Paul celebrates the greatest gifts of grace that come on the coattails of our justification and of all the doctrines that he goes over in verses 1 to 7. We've seen that it's rather a, a symphonic celebration because it's written in four stately movements, each highlighting a different gift of grace. We've dealt so far with the first, our identity, verses 14 to 17, and then our glory, verses 18 to 25, then our destiny. Last time we saw the force of our destiny, that is driven by the Spirit's intercession, that's verses 26 to 28. This week, we'll see the course of our destiny, that is directed by the Father's orchestration and driven by His great compassion. It's a destiny that the Father conceived in eternity when He foreknew and predestined us. And He confirmed it in history when He called and justified us. And He will consummate this destiny in glory when we will be glorified, as Paul says. Now, to really appreciate all this, we need to put it in context. We need to put it in the context of real life, uh, of life under the sun, as Solomon called it in the book of Ecclesiastes, because all this glory goes counter to the what you might call the general trajectory of human life, the way of all flesh, which Paul describes in detail in Romans 1-3. to 3. 
It's, it's a darkness. It's a darkness that you see from the very beginning, from the fall of Adam to the flood of, of Noah to the tower of Babel. And then you see it all through the history of Israel and in the history of humanity. Someone said that God is letting every form of human government run its course to prove that mankind is incapable of governing himself. And boy, are we proving that. It's like Winston Churchill said during World War II, as the centuries roll along, while men are gathering knowledge and power with ever-increasing speed, man's virtues and wisdom haven't shown much progress. Modern man stoops to the same deeds as ancient man, and as modern women will go along. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to real progress. One poet put it this way, we beat on boats against the current, borne backward ceaselessly into the past. It's the course of life without God. That's the backdrop to these verses. Maybe that's what you feel like right now. I was reading years ago in Time Magazine a review of a documentary film that, uh, called Seven Up. Uh, in it, seven Britishers were randomly chosen and then interviewed in 1963 when they were seven years old. Seven years later, in 1970, they sat, they sat for another a state of their lives portrait, as it was called. That became another documentary called 14 Up, that is 14 Years Up. And then they did it again in 1977, 1984, 1991. Here's how the article begins. Every seven years, they become British TV stars. Susie, the posh girl, and Tony, the tearaway jockey boy, and poor dear Neil, and the rest of a dozen or so children who have grown up, or at least older, playing themselves in a real-life soap opera. The latest installment, 28 Up, includes generous excerpts from the three previous reports, flipping through the dozen lives as through a family album or a social worker's casebook. We find a fascinating and poignant group picture of a nation with the juice squeezed out. To watch the original documentary is to be charmed into suspending awareness of the depressing trajectory of their lives, of British life since then. The succeeding films follow an arc. They might be called 14 Perpendicular, 21 Tilt, 28 Down. Taken individually, the interviews have their flashes of cheer and wit, but in some, they suggest accommodation to life's dreary compromises. The 28ers do not strut or rage or tease. They seem already middle-aged, emotionally pinched, too cautious to hope for more. They speak of Britain's defeat in every tentative phrase. This wasn't just the decline of Britain. It's the decline of Western civilization. And it's not just Western civilization, it's, it, it's human. This is the trajectory of humanity that will climax in the last days when Paul says difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, etc., etc. 2 Timothy 3, that sounds like today. 
As Christ said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, Matthew 24, 7. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes and they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And because lawlessness is increased, this is the trajectory of humanity. Most people's love will grow cold and there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. It says that God will give them over to this, to the trajectory of human life without God, where we're like comets, as one man said, hurtling across the dark night of human history like showers of falling meteors. That's the context for our verses for today. It's the context that Paul sets in Romans 1 to 3. And against this backdrop, this passage, these two verses here are like a flare that suddenly shoots up in the night because our stars are taking quite another course. They're shining uh, brighter, rising higher as the night grows deeper. It's like Solomon says in Proverbs 4.18. This is the scriptural context of our verses for today. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the, two, until the full day. As like Paul says, we press on toward the goal of the prize of something that's up and not down, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Until, like Daniel said, the righteous will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. And Paul says that this flare is you. No matter how, you know, engulfed in the darkness you may feel, if you've been born again, you're being born up and carried away as in 28 up. Or if you're 40 years old, it's 40 up. If, it's, if you're 80, it's 80, not down, but up. How so? Well, let's see. Let's read it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many, among myriads of brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And he, these whom he justified, he also glorified. We looked at uh, our predestination last week. We'll cover our calling and our justification when we go back to the beginning of Romans, and we'll see that in Romans 3. We've already seen our glorification here in Romans 8. So now... It's time to focus on the heart of it all, on the nuclear core of the whole reaction that launched the, the plan of redemption in the first place and that will end in our glorification, all because we've been, one word, foreknown. And just what does that mean? Well, there's some real treasure here. Something foreknown means essentially to uh, predict. God saw in advance that some would choose him of their own free will apart from his involvement and he rewarded them in advance by uh, going on to predestine them. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. 
He foreknew they would come to faith, and on that basis, he predestined them to glory. Many godly men have held this view, John Wesley being among them, men who I deeply admire in other ways. But biblically, the word foreknew never means to know in advance, in the sense of seeing in advance that it will happen. No, it means to know in advance in the sense of loving or choosing in advance, totally apart from what we might do at some future date to deserve it, because we are incapable of doing anything to deserve it. As in, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me, like the song that we began with says, when I was your foe, your love fought for me. That's the point of Romans 1 to 3, as we'll see. We'll see that on our own, apart from God, nobody's good, except by faith that all good comes from God, including the good of a salvation that we didn't do anything to merit. Indeed, long before you could choose, long before you were born, before the beginning of time, God swept down to sweep you up in a chain of events, a chain reaction of salvation that reaches from eternity past to eternity future that began way back when you were foreknown. Foreknown. This is a Greek, a Greek version of a Hebrew word that's all over the place in the Old Testament. You see it from the very beginning. In Genesis 18, 19, for instance, God said this of Abraham, I have chosen him in order that he may command his children to keep the way of the Lord. But get this, literally that translates, I have known him, which is how the King James Version translates it, which means I have chosen him. In the Hebrew, to know is never the kind of knowledge that comes by, you know, looking in a crystal ball like a, like a prediction. No, it means a personal relationship of compassion and affection because you've been chosen. In the Old Testament, it means the deepest possible intimacy. That's why when Adam laid with Eve, it says that he what her? He, remember, knew her. It's what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And what does that mean, that I predicted something about you? No, God defines it in the next sentence. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. Under it all, foreknowledge is electing love. It means that I have loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3, and with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That's, you might say that's the Romans 8, 29, and 30, our verses for today of the Old Testament in one verse. I loved you with an everlasting love, that is, I foreknew you. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That is, I have predestined, called, justified, and will glorify you. Foreknown is another way of saying foreloved. And what that means is this. It means he loves us unconditionally. He loved us 
before we ever uttered a word or willed a work. It's the exact opposite of foreseeing our good works and choosing us because of them. No, he loved us before we ever did anything. The Williams translation says that we are those upon whom, and I love this translation, we are those upon whom he set his heart beforehand. As the old hymn goes, he loved me ere I knew him, before I knew him, and all my love, therefore, is due him. He knew us by graciously choosing us in love with our, with, without our doing a thing to deserve it. Just like we sang at the beginning of the service, uh, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Remember that before the sermon? Though I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. It's the deepest longing of every human heart to be loved unconditionally, to be loved because, not because you merit it, not because you deserve it, but because he just loved you. To be loved because you merit it, because you deserve it, always leaves room for doubt. There's always the fear that the love could disappear if you fall short of their expectations. Always the feeling that you're not loved for yourself but because of your performance. But oh no, not with God. Just like Moses said to the children of Israel, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because, just because the Lord loved you. Deuteronomy 7, 7. All of us yearn to be loved and to be known in that way, to be known by name. And out of that love to be called, not just uh, generically, but personally, to be called by name, to be called by what you might call a distinguishing love, an electing love, an everlasting love of you in particular. We all want that. And here it is. I have loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness, I have drawn you. You know, our first day in ministry was 35, 38 years ago. I forget exactly what. On our first Sunday at our first church in Houston, we learned a lesson about this that we'll never forget, and we've seen it so many times since. It wasn't a big deal, but it really was, and it said everything. We saw, as we got out of our car, an elderly couple across the parking lot, and we recognized them because we'd been studying the pictorial directory. And we said, hi, George. Hi, Mabel. Good to see you. And they stopped and just looked at us. And you know something? Twelve years later, they were still talking about that day, about how we knew their name, how we 
called them by name. Why did they remember that so many years later? Because we all want this. Yeah, it's important for pastors to know the names of the people, but you know what's even more important? For the sheep to know the voice of the shepherd who knows us by name and who calls us by name, morning by morning through his electing love, his everlasting love, his ever-present love, love that exploded like a supernova from the bosom of the Father, a cosmic love that is specific, his specific love for you and me who's called us by name. And it's for that reason that the most frequent phrase of praise in the entire Bible, the one that meant the most to God's people, which is why it's the most frequent, is the one that harkens back to where it all began with his foreknowledge. The most frequent phrase of praise in the whole Bible is that the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting before we were born. And so, are you realizing that? Resting in it? Reveling in it? Are you resting in the everlasting arms that Moses says is always underneath you? Listening to the still, small voice morning by morning? Or are you looking for your spouse to be the one who knows you that way? who knows you by name, or the children, or your friends, or a pastor. Yeah, he incarnates his love indirectly through people, and that's important, but he communicates his love most directly, most personally, most intimately through his spirit and his word together to those who have ears to hear to those who sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary did, every way to listen to his word, to recognize his voice, to hear him calling, to hear him say, when I foreknew you, it was love at first thought. And at that thought, there was a nuclear reaction of compassion that set in motion an orchestration of events stretching from eternity past to eternity future, from predestination to your glorification. For these he also glorified. Paul's talking here about the day when all together will stand holy and blameless before him because he was the firstborn, as it says in our verses for today, of many, of myriads of brethren. And someday we'll be standing before him because we're a, a, a star-spangled congregation, you might say, that's rising in the night. He, even as I speak, for God has called you through the gospel, 2 Thess 2.14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is working all things to this end that you may be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and to that end we will fill heaven with 
a thousand points of light and more, myriads upon myriads of us, a starry host will assemble in the highest heavens in New Jerusalem to be constellated into the body of the bride, a star-celled beauty of saints from all the ages, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, when, as Christ said in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, for these he also glorified. Which is in the past tense, because it's as good as done. You may feel like huh, 35 down right now, or 45, or 55, or 65 down. The entire of mankind, in fact, is going down, as is the creation itself, as we've seen, which has been subjected to futility. But we are ascending through it all, one day to shine over it all in glory. And so... In the space of just two verses, Paul moves us from eternity past to eternity future. And good thing, because it is so easy, if you're anything like me, it is so easy to miss the forest for the trees as we wind our way through time. As we, as someone said, plod this earthly sod. We can be so nearsighted. We see us through a glass dimly, as Paul said, through glassy eyes. It's three steps forward, two steps backward. It's how long, O oh Lord. It's what can feel like an eternity in what's really just the blink of a life. We see our lives one frame at a time, you might say, we look at one snapshot of our life each day. Look at a snapshot of your life and you may very well despair, but get it uh, out of you know the freeze frame mode. Look at all at once. Watch the whole fume, film in fast motion in, uh, 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 in two verses and you will see a story of such epic proportions, as I began by saying, of cosmic ramifications, of such specific compassions, with each specific compassion for you and me, you'll see a destiny that is masterfully orchestrated, this confirmed, consummated, conceived, foreknown by God Almighty forever and ever. Amen. Get past the individual frames and view the film, the film in fast motion. Watch your whole life pass before your eyes from eternity past to eternity future. <laughs> and you'll get an eternal perspective on things that, Lord willing, you'll never forget. And we'll be so moved that when the film is over, when the lights come up, we'll find ourselves on our faces before the throne in gratitude for his sovereign compassion. For the loving kindness of the Lord is indeed from 
everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him from being foreknown to your glorification. You know, Frederick Lehman once found a poem that had been written on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum. They discovered it there after he uh, had been carried to his grave, the one who wrote the poem. I'd call that a, a depressing trajectory. And it would have been, except for what that crazy man wrote on the wall of his room in that insane asylum. He wrote, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every scribe man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would dry, drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. As many of you know, Lehman turned that into a hymn, the love of God. Listen to it, especially if you think you're going crazy. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills the mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Bottom line, by faith, we can see our lives in fast motion in two verses. But by sight, we still got to live our lives in slow motion, one day, one moment, one frame at a time. So the application is this, by faith, take heart and plod on. It's like the poem that's titled, to an old parson. Few of you are old parsons, which means an old pastor. But whether you're elderly or just feel older than your years, whether you're young or old, many of you may feel like this old parson as he plods this earthly sod. You may feel like it's whatever your age, 35 down, 45, 55, 65, 75, or 85 down, when really it's 85 up. This is for all of you, this poem, but it's especially for the elderly, because life gets especially hard then, and it's especially for the elderly also because it's the older generation, unfortunately, in my opinion, that still likes poetry. Listen carefully.
plod on, plod on, old parson, slow, plod on. Your eve has come, your glory gone, your path and youth and manhood's prime, once strewn with roses all the time, the praise of men, a place and name, an opportunity for fame, that path, now belief beneath your feet, lies hard and bare. Ignored, abandoned, bowed with care, you must plod on through weary days, while younger men receive the praise, the opportunities once thine, all now denied in thy decline. In hope, plod on, O faithful soul, before you lies your prize, your goal. Your master knows your work well done, your finished course, your, way, your race well run. Though now unwanted by men here, cast off by earth, God holds you dear. He has a place for you on high, a place in glory, a place of glory in the sky, a place of service, rest, and joy that time and age can ne'er destroy. Oh, in faith, plod on. Your guiding star is standing bright o'er gates ajar, ajar to heaven's welcome sweet. There saints and angels shall thee greet. So then, old parson, slow, plod on. Forget your earthly glory gone, nor backward cast a mourning eye along your path with tear and sigh. Look up and see your guiding star. Look on and see the gates ajar. Behold the honor not of earth, the honor of eternal worth. Your path through, though yet on earthly sod, leads on to glory, heaven, God. Plod on, you who are foreknown. Listen now to a song that begins with this. You go before, I know you've even gone to win my war. Your love is my defense. It leads me through the wilderness. And all I did was praise. So take heart, plod on, and give him the pleasure of praising him before all that happens. Because as someone said, faith is the bird that sings to the dawn while it is still dark. Let's lift up our praise. <laughs> 